welcome to Unspooled. Top three. Top three. Top three. Amy, I'm so excited about our guest on top three today. Uh, I'm excited and nervous. Oh, my God. (laughs) Very nervous. Uh, You know him from over 230 films. Uh, He is currently the star of Secession. He has been in the universes of the X-Men. He originated the role of Hannibal Lecter and Michael Mann's Manhunter. Uh, And, I mean, the the list goes on and on. Uh, Brian Cox is one of those faces that you see in films that I think I get giddy because I know there's going to be a good scene or a good part. He's just kind of an electric performer no matter if the if the role is big or small he's always doing something really interesting he is and he has just come out with a book a memoir of his life called putting the rabbit in the hat where he talks about his approach to acting but he also talks a lot about his really rough childhood he was born into a you know working class family in dundee scotland he was actually born like backwards umbilical cord tied around his neck almost died his mother was never the same his father died when he was 8 his mother had to raise the family alone while being under a lot of stress he talks about you know growing up so poor that you know, when they ran out of money and didn't have an, enough to even eat dinner, he would go across to like the fish and chip store and like beg them to give him the leftover fried dough from the fryers. Just oh those little, God. like like you're living on the Long John Silver's dough balls. Do you remember those? Yes, I, I mean, do. And from there, deciding he was going to be an actor and committing to the life of being an actor at a time when England is making this transition from, you know, only doing posh kind of highbrow stuff, you know, the full highfalutin stage world to allowing, you know, kind of more rough and tumble working class actors on the stage, you know, making this like big switch that took them a while. You know, we were doing that here in in Hollywood much faster than that came to England. And so it was just a great, great story about him, him, his life, cultural changes taking place. It's, it's a, a fantastic bit, read. Yeah, it's a little bit like Angela's Ashes. It is also an acting textbook. There's some really great insights on acting. And I think, you know, when you've done as many films as he has, you just learn a lot and you see a lot. And um, and yeah, there is all the things that you have read in every little pull quote about uh, the actors that he has not liked. Uh, so much so that he had to add an addendum to the book to just say that maybe he was a little bit harsh on some people. But when you read the book, it doesn't really come across that way. I think what's wonderful about the book is it's incredibly candid as if you are sitting down and having a drink with Brian Cox, and he's talking about his career. It feels like a conversation in, in the best way. I love his style of writing, and everything kind of flows in and out. And you realize this is a, a person who has had this very unique vantage point uh, to go through Hollywood. He didn't explode on the scene, but yet his performances have been memorable and just keep on building and building and building. And I'm sure for a lot of people... Uh, you know, they might just know him as Logan Roy. And that, you know, I remember going to see Alan Rickman in a play on Broadway and most of the people in the audience were in Harry Potter gear. Uh, By the way, Brian Cox talks about being the only one of the few uh, people from the UK not to be in Harry Potter. But but this idea that he is consistently bringing in new audiences, you know, whether it is Super Troopers or X-Men or, you know, he uh, running with scissors or adaptation, like he just continually is an actor who I think uh, 
gets people excited. Once you become a fan, you're not going to turn away. Well, on that note, should we welcome him in to talk about his top three movies that we should be adding to our list of space? Yes. All right, Brian, welcome. We're so happy to have you here. We're so happy to talk about your top three films. Let's just jump right in. The first film on your list is a film that we have loved and talked about here on the show. It is from 1938. It is Bringing Up Baby, directed by Howard Hawks, starring Katherine Hepburn, Cary Grant, and a leopard and a big dinosaur bone. Um, this movie is so fun. Let's play a clip, and then I want to hear why. Why this? What do you want? Well, who are you? Who are you? What, who are you? What do you want? Well, who are you? I don't know. I'm not quite myself today. Well, you look perfectly idiotic in those clothes. These aren't my clothes. Well, where are your clothes? I've lost my clothes. Well, why are you wearing these clothes? Because I just went gay all of a sudden. Well, your first pick, bringing up baby. Why? Tell us about this choice. Well, I, I mean, apart from the fact it's, it's, it's so funny and it's so brilliant. I mean, the, the partnership of Kate Hepburn and Cary Grant is just uh, incredible. It, it could, it's made in heaven. They're so funny together. They have a complete understanding of one another's rhythms. They do some great stuff, that stuff where she tears her dress and he's walking behind her in the petticoat. I mean, and it's it's a wonderful film and it's fast. It's Howard Hawks is, you know, the things that he taught, he, he picked up on was the speed of stuff. And he was the great master of speed. I mean, you you see it in His Girl Friday where they, he made them all speak at nine to the dozen. Well, he does the same and it's the same. It never stops it, and it mounts and it gets bigger and funnier and, and it pays off. Unfortunately, like the, one of the other films I've chosen later on, the Court Jester, it didn't do very well when it was first yeah. aired. It really didn't have a success. It didn't get the notice. And I think the reason is that people weren't going to give to it. Audiences don't realize that they have to play a part. You know, they can't just sit there like great puddings expecting the things to you know, come from them. They've got to be open in a way. And it's new. That kind of humor was so new that, you know, it was the birth of screwball comedy. I mean, there was elements of, always elements of it. But that is this sort of the screwball comedy of all times. That's why the critics kind of went, oh, I'm not sure. I mean, it was all uncertainty, you know, and therefore it damaged it a little bit. But I think now, of course, it's, it is regarded as probably one of the funniest films ever made, and, and rightly as it should be. So you're right, there's like a symmetry, like bringing a baby is the one that kind of puts the nail in the coffin and says Catherine Hepburn is box office poison. And it's another screwball movie with Gary Grant, a Philadelphia story that kind of drags her back out of this. And I was wondering why you gave the edge to bringing a baby of the two. Uh, because I just think because it's raw. It's a raw film and it's also got Car I mean, Cary Grant is quite... He's wonderful in Philadelphia story, but the, the main role in that is Jimmy Stewart, you know, right. and and Kerry does his stuff because he's always brilliant. I mean, I he's he's one of my heroes is Kerry Grant, just you know, incredible. But in Bring Up Baby, he's there's more danger in it. There's more you know sense of immediacy. It's just the physical comedy of it is it's so physical and that relationship and and her ranginess and his. Ability as an athlete and, uh, you know, who did all that kind of stuff when it started. I just think it's a stunning, stunning piece of work. How did you find that movie? Like, where did it, when did it come into your life? Like, you know, I, I know for me, well, like I found, yeah. What happened was, you know, I, I just went to the movies constantly from the age of about five. 
Right. And you used to be double featured. In my, in my hometown, there were 21 cinemas when I was a kid. Right angles to the street where I lived, there was two cinemas, one up Kitty Corner to one another, the Broadway and the Royal. And they would play double features. So there'd be double features for three days a week, and then they'd switch. And they were the double features were always amazing. And so I saw that, and then, the, then the, there was a... They used to have films on Sunday night where they deliberately played classics. So I saw Bring Up Baby, uh, Going My Way, Rennie Clares, and then there was none. I mean, just amazing movies that we saw. And I remember that vividly as a, as a kid growing up. I mean, you called Cary Grant one of your heroes. I was thinking what makes his story so interesting, you know, like going from being kind of hard scrabble, Bristol born Archibald Leash to becoming like the all-time debonair leading man, Cary Grant. I mean, that's one of Hollywood's amazing transformations. And I've heard you speak before about how much you admired kind of the, the, the working actors who came out in Hollywood, the people who like immigrated and like re, re, were able to reboot themselves in, in, in a way that felt more free than in England. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think he would have been, you know, my great thing is that that, that released so much to acting talent that, that time of social mobility that we had in the UK that we haven't had since it was and it was the social same social mobility that created the Beatles the you know the Stones the, the Who the Kinks and also it was the same social mobility that allowed me as a kid working class kid from Scotland to go even poverty class not even working class to go to London and study and get my fees paid for my uh, all my uh, my accommodation paid for and all my expenses. You know, it was incredible. Cary Grant is the kind of, for me, is the sort of epitome of that. He, he sadly had to reinvent himself and sadly he had this extraordinary tragedy in his life. And he had a very similar relationship, except his mother disappeared and was sent away. And, and my mother was away from me quite a lot in my childhood, you know. So I experienced that, except it wasn't, you know, there wasn't the same background to that. It was a different scenario. Your next pick is The Sporting Life, which is a 1963 uh, British film directed by Lindsay Anderson. It is the story of a rugby league footballer, uh, Frank Manchin. His romantic life is not as successful as his sporting life. You know, in many ways, a kitchen sink drama. There's everything is in this uh, performance. It's a Richard Harris gives a masterful performance. It's kind of like Raging Bull before Raging Bull, you know, or on the waterfront, but a British version in a way. Take a listen to this clip. You want to crush me, but I won't let you. I'm the one thing you can't have like everything else. I want you. I want you to go. I need you. I want you to go. I want you to go. I want you to go. This is one of, I think, like those landmark movies in British cinema. It's kind of a movie that I think represents that moment when sort of the fancy manners of British films were really shaken up with like brutal realism. Yeah, absolutely. And the reason I chose Sporting Life is because of Lindsay Anderson, who I just think was one of the real visionary cinemas. He was a kind of, he was very poetic, Lindsay, but he had a very strong political view in terms of his, uh, in terms of his poeticness. You know, there was a very, it was, it was a kind of political poetry that he had about him. And he was a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful man in many ways and a great, and, and, and also quietly tortured himself because of, his own demons that he was dealing with. 
uh, a truly, truly wonderful, and a real artist and a real carer, and and, a, and a one and somebody who really, really understood human motivation in a way that I've never come across subsequently. He was extraordinary in that way, but, and I always thought that he was he should have done more psychological and emotional stuff. But he he saw himself as a Jonathan Swift. He saw himself as a satirist, so that's why you have Oh Lucky Man, If, and, and, and finally Britannia Hospital. See, because it was, he was a, he felt that he had to commentate on this the society, and it was un, an understandable thing. Interestingly, in the sixties, through the free cinema, they were able to open themselves to it in an emotional way, not just in a class way, but in the art that was to be expressed because it was also great writing, David Story, Alan Silito, great working class writers of the time, all in the wake of D.H. Lawrence, you know, who started a wave that a war had separated and then this finally the wave was trickling up. So all of that was amazing. That was an amazing time and creating amazing work. And Lindsay hit on it. He, uh, he understood the barbarity of it. So his filming of the, uh, the rugby scenes are quite brutal and quite, you know, and you see it in that slow and that mud and that rain, which is how it was, except it was working class and they didn't. And then the, him getting the salt, the losing the teeth and the, the hallucinatory nature of the story. I mean, I just think it's a brilliant film, brilliant film. Yeah, I mean, I feel like for people who haven't had a chance to watch it yet, I, I'm assuming people listening to this, you know, love Secession are really struck by like kind of the emotional violence that you can see in Secession. Like people who love that, they're going to be knocked out by some of the scenes in this movie between Richard yeah. Harris and Rachel Roberts. Yeah, oh, well, Rachel is stunning. She's it's a great performance, and and the moment that penultimate moment when he hits the fly and he misses a moment, it, it just oh, to this day, I'm. And Richard, Richard was never better. He was very open and very raw. And he had this kind of, he really did have a Brando-like energy. You know, there was no question about it. Except he's also famous for getting into fights with Brando on the set of Mutiny oh, yeah. and Bounty, well, that he, he had no patience for diva behavior. No, no, he was, he felt that Brando was a height of selfishness. It's funny because I think that also like this performance of Richard Harris in this movie is kind of like, uh, Brando in Streetcar Named Desire. Like it, it's a it's a big performance that isn't often spoken about. And I don't know if that's just because it's a movie about rugby or it didn't like it. It it is a great film, but it is like a performance that I feel like is a hidden Richard Harrod. Oh Harris well, I, I I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, but this is you know when you're as old as I am, the one thing you witness is how history isn't true. Right. History only <laughs> writes about the good guys and the ones that, you know. I mean, people used to say to me, I was, you know, when I was a young actor, they used to say, well, Edmund Keane. I said, well, why do we know that? It's a fact. You know, Edmund Keane might have just been an awful actor. We just only have this guy's opinion that they agree about it. And that's what we have to take, you know, which is fine and subject to debate. But I know, I mean, I, and I, I feel that very strongly. I feel that the sense of history is so important and where we were at certain, and, you know, that's, that's a very important film about the liberation in many ways about working class life, you know, that, that happened and working class artistic life, the expression. That was really what all those films, especially David Story, wrote about that as a writer, you know. When you write in your book that when, when you when you were just starting to get into theater and acting, you knew an actor who had auditioned or wanted to go out for like the, the Richard Harris role. And when he didn't get it, he threatened to jump into a river and kill himself. <laughs> <laughs> he, he, he didn't. He, in a fit of pique, 
he was annoyed. It was actually before he didn't get the film. It was he didn't get the film after that. It wasn't because he jumped in the river, but it was actually a, a Lindsay Anderson story. And he was he was it was a wonderful actor called Nicole Williamson. And there was this party, and uh, Nicol was um, being uh, was doing a number because Lindsay Anderson hadn't spoken to him, so he was feeling that he'd been ignored, and he was playing the lead. I can't even remember what the play was. It was I was there in a very minor capacity, but I was just I still was, I was just scene shocking at that time. <laughs> and uh, I, I remember this. Oh, you know, he's going to uh, suddenly there was this cry that Nicol was going to kill himself, and he was running down. It was a hill like this, and there was the water like that. So he was running down there, and people were running up on Nickel. And, nah, nah, nah. <laughs> and then he leapt over the side, and of course the tide was out, so he just landed in the sand, <laughs> soggy <laughs> sand. And I, I always thought that was quite funny, you know. <laughs> How do you play a character sort of like the one that Richard Harris does here? Because what I think is so striking is he... He's bringing so much vitality to a character who I feel like can't really articulate everything happening inside of him. How do you, as an actor, play a character like that? Well, you you go to the... You always go... I mean, you know, in a way, I'm, I'm not a great bereaver in the emotional memory, and I'm just about to use one, but, which is I find really <laughs> ironic that I'm actually doing that. I can't believe I'm doing it. But I, I, I think you go to a place where you remember something that so affected you in a way that's on a parallel level to 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 the, the thing that's required. And you kind of reroute it through that in order to get that feeling of rejection, that feeling of alienation, that feeling of exclusion, you know, whatever that feeling is. And and you yeah, and we all have these feelings. That's what we borrow upon as actors. We, you know, we don't we don't have to go too far to actually realize them because they're there, they're they're with us. 24-7, you know. I think the beginning part of this book, you know, you wanted to talk a little bit about acting and technique and what made you want to put that down, you know, uh, and, and your way of approaching acting? Like, what what, well, you know, what I, I just think there's a lot of nonsense talked about it and there's a lot of right. sense talked about it. And I just wanted to make it, I wanted to clarify, also I want to clarify it for myself as far as anybody else. You know, by talking things out, you can clarify it. And it's just, I've always had a sort of, uh, you know, I've, I mean, I've gone down the method road. There's no question about it. I've, I've been reprimanded for not going down the method road as well. <laughs> but I, no, I've done, I've done that. I've, I've assimilated certain things. And, and I also called on my anger, you know, because of my childhood. The, there's a lot of unspoken anger that I've got. And I know that that's there. So there's a reservoir. And anger is always very good. It's a very good reservoir to have, especially yeah. if you're a, and a performer, you know, it can give you so much. And so I've always had that. So I've always been able to kind of tune into those areas of me in relation, but never to the extent that I I make that the substitute for the role. I just see that as a as a texture that the role takes on, you know. I, I it's so interesting because I feel like when you work as you have over the course of many decades and with so many different people, you get to see how everybody works and you're kind of subjected to the way that they work. And yeah, that's right. Do you feel like you learn still at this age from other people that you're watching and, and you're working off against? Well, or yeah. Do you, yeah. Well, I think you do. I, I think you're open. You, you actually, you learn not what to do. 
<laughs> that's always the like, oh, I'm not going to go down that route. No, yeah. no, no way, you know. I mean, and people, you say, oh, you want to walk off that building? Oh, go ahead, let me just watch. And I'll do it. <laughs> oh, okay, bye. I find not. I, you know, I, I really don't, I don't really going to go down that route. I try and avoid it as much as I can. When it becomes some kind of religious experience and I just go, not for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's a it's a tricky thing. I was once working with an actor who would go in and out of being in character and being himself, and I never knew who I was talking to, and I would always have to be like catching up, and I was afraid to respond because I didn't know if I, I needed to be the character. And, were you work, and, Were you working with him? I was. Yeah, you I see, was, that's that's where I think that what happens is that it it, it puts off people. You yes. know, you were you you were put into a difficult position, and because of the 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 game that he decided to set up in relationship to his role, and I think that's selfish. I well, think that is because yeah. you know we're all vulnerable in one way or another, and 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 the one thing you don't do is you don't build walls around what you're doing. You actually always have to keep it open and free and organic. So you have to have a flow about it. Air has to go through it. And at least tell the other person what you're doing. Because I often find that that's something that I walk, like you walk into something like, just let me know. Like, hey, when I'm on set, I am this person. Like, But if you don't tell me the rules, I have no idea what's going. I have exactly. not, exactly. I'll just sit there with my head down. Well, Let's, I think that yeah. so much of your book, though, is kind of this defense of bringing joy back into entertainment. I mean, you even say at one point that you like a Batman who's witty and funny, not like a brooding Batman. And, and I'm saying that just kind of as a segue to get to the, our last film, which you have said just glowing things about that, you know, this film is your favorite comedy. It's the movie that you put on when you're in a low mood. And it's a movie that I wasn't familiar with until you picked it out. It's it's The Court Jester. It's from 1955. It's a gigantic musical comedy starring Danny Kaye, an actor that we love here on the show from um, Singing in the Rain. This is him in the medieval era playing a court jester spy. He sings, he dances, he sword fights. This is an everything movie. Watching it, I kept thinking, honestly, about The Princess Bride, about our conversation about The Princess Bride, and a genre movie that throws in every genre. So it can be about romance and adventure and danger and intrigue and dancing and all of it. You have picked an everything movie. Let's listen to a bit of The Court Jester and then tell us about it. What have we here? Uh, sire, may I present the incomparable Giacomo? Uh, king of jesters and jester of kings. Oh, yes, from Italy. I haven't been there for years. Tell me, how go things at the Italian court? Very well indeed, sir. Splendid, splendid. What about all those stories we've heard? Wasn't it awful about the Duchess of Herba? Oh, just. Uh, just awful, sire. I ask you, how could a thing like that happen? Well, sire, you know the Italian court. What uh, better place to court Italians? <laughs> Italian court? Hmm? What is it about this movie that makes it your favorite comedy? That film, I remember when I subsequently discovered, like Bringing Up Baby, it was a flop. It didn't do well. They spent a lot of money on it, but it didn't do as well. But to me, it's a great classic. The script is just so funny. The preposterousness of the characters is so funny. (laughs) And it's got great performances. I mean, Danny Kaye is priceless. He is priceless. He is witty. He is very daring. He's ve- and he's and he's also incredibly elegant. He has all right. of these elements in him that are just 
astonishing. I mean, what a talent, what an amazing talent he was. And then you've got these uh, great performances like Cecil Parker's King Roderick, the nervous King Roderick, it's very funny. And then you've got the Basil Rathbones put in. And then and then there's Angela Lansbury and Mildred Natwick. I mean, they're just brilliant, the pair of them, separately and together. I mean, Mildred Natwick, you know, snapping her fingers and making making Danny Kaye go back and forth between two characters. I, I, I just think, and it's, it's Panama and Frank, and Roman Panama and Mel Frank, and, you know, and they did a lot of the road movies, you know, the, the, the Bing Crosby road movies. Right. And I just, and Bob, I don't know, for me, it's priceless. And whenever I'm down, whenever I feel, you know, I, oh, let me, what do I do? And, then I, and the vessel with the pestle and, instead of the pellet with the poison is the thing that always gets me. Can you say that whole thing? Yeah, uh, the, 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 the flagon with the dragon is the brood of this true. The, the pellet with the poisons and the vessel with the pestle. And remember, the chalice of the palace is also the brood that is true or something. <laughs> Are you ever looking to do more comedy? Obviously, you've been in Super oh my God. Picks, Yeah, I died to do comedy. I mean, uh, this, this is, you know, I always thought myself as one of the lost comic actors of all time. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I love comedy. You know, I love doing, you know, that's the great thing about doing things like the Super Troopers movies. You know, yeah. that, that's what they are. They're naked comedy. No, I, I'd, I'd love to do more comedy because, and I tell you, that's the other thing. As you get older, you just want to laugh. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you, know, you don't want to waste your tears. You just want to laugh. You laugh at everything. Laugh at the nice things and also the absolutely ludicrous life that we all lead. <laughs> <laughs> when you write about the court jester in your book, you say that this kind of came about at a time when you were young and realizing that you just wanted to be an actor and that you knew that that was yeah. the career path for you. And it, and when you talk in the book about like your, your childhood and how poor you were and, and how hungry your family was, the idea of committing yourself to the arts at a young age and being able to stick to it. I'm just, I'm in awe of that. And I wanted, I want to know how you did that. Well, I just think you have this, you have this, this vision of something of a life and you, and you go for it. And I'm, I'm blessed. I'm incredibly blessed. I mean, I, I really, you know, there, there's a few people that, that have had the same experience I've had, but not very many. And right. I, I just, and I, I feel a lot of sadness about that. I mean, I'm not saying I'm in any way special, but I've just been incredibly blessed with that nature that's always been open to that particular art form that's, that has helped, that's helped me so much the time. And, you know, I mean, I, I, one of the things I noticed that, that I didn't, I wasn't aware of is that I love the television. I'm a great television watcher. Mm -hmm. And I, I'd forgotten that when my dad died, I didn't go to his funeral. And I, and television was brand new in those days. It was, you know, it was just the brand, the newest thing, you know, and when there was, I remember everybody going to the coronation a couple of years, all walking up the stairs to see this one little television show in the coronation and families would troop up and then troop away and more families would come, you know, because there was no, she was the only lady in the block that had television. You know, that was what it was like. But and I should what, say, by the way, you didn't get to go to the funeral because you were eight years old well, and your mother kept you point. from going. That, 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 she wouldn't I let you get, go. No, that's right. My, yeah. I was put down. My mom didn't want me to be upset. She was worried about me. And she put me in front of a television. I stayed in front of a television. And of course, it was incredibly comforting, you know, to be in front. of. And I was taken by the television. There's no question about it. Uh, I used to fantasize years about this thing about my father, which was all lies. I made up a whole scenario about, you know, being in the same room as my father was when he was stretched out. But it was all bollocks. It was all lies. 
uh, because a I was embarrassed and probably a little guilty that I was actually sitting watching and, and enjoying the telly. <laughs> no, it's so interesting. Is I, like I'm a I'm a latchkey kid and uh, would watch come home and just watch TV all the time. And there was no now there are rules about screen time and all that sort of stuff. But I would come home. My parents worked and you and that that TV was this other friend and that other world. That's right. That was the reality. So much. One of the great inventions. <laughs> and I also think what we're missing in a way is. Back in the day, there were less options, so you were kind of forced to watch what was on. Like, right now, I could pick anything. I could watch anything that I want. My kids yeah. get irritated when they see commercials. But I do think that that actually opens you up to it, lets you kind of in to find these different worlds that you yeah, may yeah, not, you know, be brought to. I agree. To. Yeah, absolutely. I know we have to let you go, but I wanted to kind of end by quoting a quote that you quote in the book, because it really, it seems to have stuck with you, and it really stuck with me when you wrote it down, which you said, when it, the thing about, acting in movies is that there are no big or small parts. There's only long or short parts. Could you explain that what that Michael Powell. That knocked me out, you know, because I just suddenly thought, because, you know, I'd had a very successful career, you know, in the theatre, and I was about to take myself off, which is the premise for the opening of the book is the discussion between me and Nigel Hawthorne. And the premise was I just about to take myself off to America because I'd, I'd had it, you know, there was something about, there was something cloying about the whole world of that. I mean, I, but I love it now. I look back and I just adore what goes on in the UK. And, and of course, it's changing. But they, the game plan doesn't change because it's so bloody feudal, everybody in their place, and it still plays out that way. You know, that was the thing for me, was the theatre. And I, I, it sort of liberated me, you know. I, I did have a question about how you approached, especially in the beginning part of your career, these roles in which you probably were coming in for a couple of days in a much larger situation and coming from like the background of a theater and like, and you get to work with people in a cast or, you know, a director like that entry in, how did you deal with that? Like just coming in to do a, a you know, a, well, a smaller you, part. Or... It's, 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 it's the hardest thing ever. I mean, I, I had, we had an incident on a film called kiss the girls with the director who was not very nice to the actress who was doing a perfectly good job. But and he kept saying she was playing actually a, a, a coroner. You know, that mm -hmm. was what her job was. And she was, had a lot of very bone stuff. And it's the hardest thing to do. But once you've overcome that obstacle, then it's that's why there are no long parts and only short parts. And, and there are no big parts and small parts, only short parts and long parts. But even a short part is concentrated on you so that yeah. you're, and you're the focus. And that's tough. That's tough. And you have to have your wits about you to deal with it. But once you get over that hurdle, it's like learning to run a hurdle. Once you get over the first one, you go, oh, okay, I now know the rhythm of it, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Well, your book is fantastic. I know that there's an addendum here and people have been talking to you and you said that there may be another book in you because there's stories in here that we haven't even heard about uh, adaptation in this book. And there's a lot of different things here. So do you feel and doing all this, there's a second press tour because your book already was out in the UK. Like, do you feel like the energy to, to, to do another, you feel? I think, you know, if, if I'm asked to do it, I think I'd like to do it. I think there's stuff I left out and there's stuff I'd, I'd also, I mean, it's a, it's an ongoing conversation. That's how I've written it. I right, like the, that speak. style. It feels so, yeah. it feels like we're hanging out with you uh, as you get to talk about. Yeah. That's what I wanted to set up. And that's, that's what I like, you know, in a way. Nice to see you both. And thank you for your interesting questions. Oh, thank you for <laughs> these interesting picks. It was really great to go back and watch.
It was amazing to have uh, Brian on the show. And if you want to know why we didn't ask any session questions, because if you read any article, they haven't started writing the new season yet. He doesn't know anything. We weren't going to waste his time with a question about a season that he knows nothing about. That's why we avoided it. Uh, and uh, and <laughs> so I just want to be able to watch it, man. I, don't, yeah. I hate spoilers. Ah! And I have to say with great restraint, I didn't ask him if there was going to be a Disney Plus series about William Stryker, which I think would be great. I think we'd all like to see the continuing adventures of uh, that villain from X2. He was really fantastic in that. So, I mean, it's it's right there, Disney Plus. Let's make that happen. Putting the Rabbit in the Hat is available wherever you get your books, and hopefully you get them locally uh, from a local bookstore. And if you really want the treat of a lifetime, you got to listen to the audiobook because... I mean, come on, you you got the best reading the best. It's like you're really hanging out uh, with Brian Cox as he's, uh, you know, spilling the tea on his entire career. It will yeah. make you better. It'll be good. I know for a fact, Paul, that you listen to it sitting by a fireplace with a whiskey with, you know, June wearing a mask of Brian Cox. So yes. you could get the whole experience. It was very expensive to get that mask made. Some people said I didn't need to do it. But you know what? Um, anything to create a fantasy for myself, uh, you know, which Brian probably would not like as far as, you know, as what he said about uh, overdoing it on the acting front. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, we will see you uh, next time on another uh, top three. Top three.